Well, as you uh, likely heard in the news, WorkSafe BC has released some industry-specific guidelines, and these are for the next phase of the restart in this province. So these are guidelines for restaurants, cafes, pubs, salons and personal services, real estate, arts and culture, uh, places like museums and art galleries, retail, education K-12, which we've been talking about today, parks and outdoor spaces, health services, in-person counselling and office space. And joining me to talk more about this now is Al Johnson. He is the Vice President of Prevention Services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, I've been trying to click on the link that goes into the services or the um, the actual recommendations, and I think it's been kind of overwhelmed with traffic trying to do that. So if we could, let's go through some of them. And starting with, I know a lot of people have questions about restaurants, cafes, pubs. So what are the guidelines there? Generally speaking, you know, again, at WorkSafe BC, we recognize the importance of getting British Columbians back to work and employers resuming operation, but we want them to do it safely. We want them to have COVID prevention measures in place in order for their workers to be safe as they come back to work. Um, we are and have released today, and as you say, there's a lot of traffic on our website right now. We've released a number of industry-specific guidelines. You referenced many of them. And really what they are is a, a collection of resources, best practices, protocols, um, materials, and and, and uh um, resources that employers can use so that they can successfully develop their own COVID safety plan and put it in place as they resume operation. That's the intent of what we're doing here. Uh, we want employers to succeed. We want them to proceed slowly. We want them to have a plan in place, bring back their workers, include their workers in the development of these plans so that everyone, as they reopen, as they resume operation, everyone is safe. So say, for example, then uh, restaurants, cafes and pubs, what does WorkSafe BC uh, require them to do now? We have specific information that really builds upon the principles that the provincial health officer uh, and the medical health officers around the province have have established. Uh, The the guiding principles of, of good hygiene practices, good physical distancing practices, and, and uh, good sanitation practices are really the fundamental pieces of all of this, and how to do that in these particular sectors, like restaurants or like salons or in offices, each of those places, those workplaces have unique characteristics that they need to embed those principles. Our guidelines, our, our best practices offer a lot of performance type of uh, information, as well as some very prescriptive information on how they can maintain COVID safety and make sure that their workers are safe. So will they have to do things like install plexiglass? Those are There's a hierarchy of controls. Again, we have uh, those outlined for restaurants and for other retail operations where you've seen the grocery stores that have been very effective in managing uh, distancing and, uh, and putting up barriers. The same principles that we've seen for those essential services that continued and, uh, and have evolved a little bit as well because they were doing things a little differently six weeks ago than in many cases they're doing today. Um, they continue to evolve and make improvements. We see a lot of those similar uh, applications coming into these workplaces as well. So there's substitution, there's administrative controls, there's uh, engineering controls that are most important, and then, of course, there's personal protective equipment that can be utilized where you can't maintain things like proximity and distance. 
Right. So I think I think I've managed to get on the link now and it, it addresses that. So it says in places where physical distance cannot be maintained, uh, consider separating people with partitions or plexiglass uh, where other measures are not sufficient. Use masks or gloves, uh, understanding those have limitations. So one question that I'm hearing from people a lot is how can I go and have someone cut my hair and and do these safety measures? So what, what do you envision? What, what would a hair salon look like? So, so for hair salons and barber shops, we do have, um, again, a number of, of recommended and required practices on the website, and it's fairly detailed. Um, but again, it's, it's changing their, their, the way the workplace interacts with the public and their customers and the, the workers, how they interact with one another. It's things like making appointments. It's things like not sitting and waiting in a waiting room, but waiting outside until your appointment is, is until you're called into the facility or the store or the shop. Um, it's then uh, cleanliness, uh, use uh, of, of uh, the various equipment that they use, making sure it's, it's, it's cleaned very frequently, making sure that there's disposable items rather than reusable items. And of course, where you can't maintain a distance and you're in close proximity, we are also asking both the, and requiring both the, the stylist, the worker, if you will, as well as the public to be wearing a mask. So is anything banned as far as so like will they will salons still be allowed to to shampoo hair and dry hair? I think that that is, uh, again, the employers have to consider those risks and exactly how they do things. In this hierarchy of controls, again, if, if there are elements to their business that they've been doing that really they cannot do um, safely, then they have to consider whether they stop doing that. And uh, it's hard for me to say whether shampooing is one of those things. It, it really depends. Uh, hair salons, barber shops, some of them are larger operations, some of them are much smaller operations. Um, and, and they have to give these considerations themselves. And so it sounds like these are the guidelines that WorkSafe BC has released today. Uh, they're, they're general in the sense of it's all about safety and best practices. But is it leaving a lot of those decisions then up to the individual businesses that here are the guidelines, but you need to do what you're most comfortable with uh, to make sure everyone's safe? So employers in the province under our act and regulation have the responsibility to ensure a healthy and safe workplace. And so that is their obligation. That is their responsibility. They know their workplaces best. We can't prescribe exactly what measures need to be in place for every workplace in this province. But what we've tried to do is give them uh, industry-specific guidelines, best practices, information that they can then utilize and put in place. Um, to develop their COVID plans. We also have templates uh, on the website that they can download, checklists, if you will, that will assist them in creating their plans. And once they have those plans, we want to ensure that they've developed those plans in concert with their workforce, their workers are well-trained and understand what is expected of them and how to carry out the work. And then, of course, our prevention officers will be, in the days to come, inspecting these locations. And we will go out to verify that these plans that are in place are actually being followed in these workplaces. So we we want employers to succeed. We're trying to give them as many resources and support materials that we can, but it is the employer's responsibility to then look at all of those uh, ins and outs of what they do in their workplace and how they're specifically configured and how they operate 
and apply the, this information to the best of their abilities to ensure their plan is robust. Uh, are there penalties if WorkSafe inspectors go out and find uh, businesses aren't complying? You know, we're really out there trying to ensure employers succeed here. This is a new risk that's been introduced in workplaces, um, the COVID-19 risk. And like any other health and safety risk, it has to be properly managed. We want to ensure that uh, the information is there. They, the employers have what they need to put their plans together. Um, we're out there trying to catch them doing it right, if I can say it that way. But at the same time, we recognize that if if there is an employer that is just disregarding a plan, uh, disregarding what they need to do, then absolutely, we will enforce the regulation. We will issue orders, and, and that could lead to further sanctions as with any health and safety violation. Our officers are out there to educate, to consult, but also to enforce. Well, as you know, an announcement was made this morning. The Premier, Education Minister, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and others were on hand to talk about the return, the gradual return to schools in this province starting on June 1st. There will be a very staggered and part-time return, and it's all voluntary for parents and for students going back into the classroom. We also heard from Minister Katrina Chen talking about child care centres. They will not be required to reopen. But I also want to emphasize that this is very important that childcare is not mandated to reopen. It is really up to childcare providers to reopen or to return to their more regular capacity, depending on what is the best for their operation. And again, following the health and safety guidelines of our public health. Let's bring in Sharon Gregson. She is a childcare advocate and joins me on the line right now. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, how have things been as far as uh, what, what you've been seeing and hearing uh, with child care centres uh, and as far as remaining open? What, I, what sense do you get on how many have remained open during this pandemic? Well, it's very messy out there because the decision to remain open or to close has been left to individual child care providers, individual educators to decide if they should go to work and to individual parents to decide if it's best to go to their childcare setting. So everybody's doing the best they can, but it's messy. In Vancouver, about two-thirds of childcare has closed, but in the province as a whole, about two-thirds has remained open. So it's really, um, it's quite different depending on where you live. I would imagine there's going to be more of a demand, not only come June 1st when students start going back in some cases to the classroom, but as we see this phase two even start up on Monday with more businesses reopening. Absolutely. As people start to feel safer going back to work and extra measures are put in place, then yes, people are going to need to have access to childcare. It is very, um, it's very unsure what's going to happen with school-age children because school-age childcare providers are typically set up to provide before and after school care. They don't, they, if they're operating in schools, they don't know if they're going to have full-time access to schools in the summer to provide full-time care. So school age in particular is an area that is very unsure at the moment. Uh, and how do you think that's, that's even going to be worked out? Because you're right, the, the hours are so different and those, those care centres are generally based on full-time school. Well, one of the problems in British Columbia is that there hasn't been a clear message about childcare. 
um, education is a public system, and so there have been clear directives from Minister Fleming when schools close and now a gradual reopening, a much clearer message. Childcare, as I've said, has been totally left up to individual providers to decide whether to open or close. And while there has been financial incentives to remain open, and now a new health and safety protocol is encouraging um, programs to remain open or to reopen, it's still really hit and miss if the provider feels they can do that. And how does it work then, since it has been up to the providers if they stay open or close? Is there, are there any rules then as far as how many kids can be in a certain centre? Because I would imagine it's trying to bring in distancing and trying to keep all these safe measures in there as well. Well, interestingly, just today, a new health and safety protocol was released, which says group size does not have to change. So providers can continue to take the same full numbers of children if they choose because the square footage allowed in licensed childcare is supposedly enough to in order to maintain physical distancing. And it says that um, there should be hand washing, that toys should be cleaned at least once a day, etc., etc. So some of the typical kinds of cleanliness and hygiene practices you'd expect to see in a quality child care program. And is it possible from what you've seen and heard, I mean, as far as keeping kids, I can't imagine looking at a child care centre and keeping kids distanced. It's absolutely impossible. In fact, I've heard some child care providers say that it would be cruel to try and implement physical distancing with, with young children. And if they haven't got the, the cognitive ability to understand why, then being maintained in you know small areas to play alone or play with one other child, not understanding why, can be very stressful. So what do you anticipate happening as we see more of a demand returning for child care? Well, I absolutely can tell you what the Coalition of Childcare Advocates is recommending with support from the Early Childhood Educators of BC. We're recommending that in order to allow parents to participate back in the workforce, we need to expand the number of $10 a day childcare sites across the province so that childcare is actually affordable for people to go back to work. We need to implement immediately a competitive province-wide wage grid so that early childhood educators are paid decent wages for their important work. After all, we've been told constantly now that childcare is an essential service. And we need to start expanding the number of childcare spaces with public partners, particularly school districts. So there is a plan, there is a way through this. Childcare needs to be a central part of BC's recovery. Uh, and we need the Premier and, the, and his task force to get to work on that. Uh, but even if that doesn't happen, because those sound very similar to, to what you were calling for before the pandemic, if we're, if we're talking specifically about kids that haven't been at the childcare centres because, say, their parents haven't been working or, or their parents weren't comfortable with them being there, and those kids coming back to the spaces they were already in, how do you see that playing out? Well, it'll happen gradually. It'll take a while before for all parents feel comfortable being back in a group environment. Um, and what I'm hearing from parents is that they do want to start going back to work, even if it's on a gradual basis. And if they didn't already have childcare, then they're desperate for it, or they don't have any savings left, and they don't have a $1,000 a month to start paying for childcare. And so we do need to put more emphasis on affordability, and we do need to put more emphasis on actually having educators being paid well for what we say is an essential service. So, um, yes, it is 
a, a similar message to what we've had in the past, but the pandemic has made it even more necessary to ramp up that implementation. Uh, and Sharon, just one other question, because we're hearing a lot now of the absolute rule, do not go to work if you're not feeling well, even if you have a sniffle. Uh, that's for everybody. I mean, kids always have sniffles. How does that work with keeping kids or sending kids to a, a childcare centre and, and gauging whether or not they have a sniffle and shouldn't be there? Well, the health and safety protocols say that those children should be at home. Um, if they're going to be tested for COVID, they can only return if they're tested that they don't have COVID or when their symptoms have gone. And so that applies for the children and for the educators. All right. We will leave it there. Sharon Gregson, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, lots happening today. We have the WorkSafe BC guidelines for businesses reopening as part of phase two of the bring back the reopening of the economy in BC. And that is welcome news to a lot of businesses and a lot of people who have seen their hours cut or disappear altogether. And a new poll is taking a look at the financial impacts of COVID-19 on this province, on BC. And joining me now to talk a bit more about the findings is Steve Mossop. He's the president of Insights West, where the poll was done. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, What did you ask people about uh, the finances and what uh, they've noticed as far as taking that financial hit during this pandemic? We wanted to do uh, probably the most comprehensive look that we've done on finances today. We've done about eight polls on the impact of COVID on a number of different things. And this one really focused on the household level and the individual. So when we look at the the overall finding, we've got about uh, 54% of BC residents who say that they've been negatively impacted by the pandemic including, and that includes 11% who say it's had a major negative impact, uh, and 43% who say it's moderate. And were you surprised at all by those findings? Not really, because we've we've polled a little bit on this uh, in the ones leading up to here, but this one, I'd I'd say the one that surprised me the most is um, we knew that, you know, with the whole lockdown effect that people are staying home more and are just not doing the things that they do. Normally, they're not shopping, they're not other than food and maybe booze, which seems to be higher these days, uh, there isn't a lot of shopping going on. And we saw some reports today come out that retail is really the hardest hit. So we've got uh, 26% of BC residents are actually saving more money than usual. Hmm, that, that is interesting because I, I know some people, I don't know if you asked people this too, but there is that been that shift to online, but probably not at the same level of, of, of buying or spending money as before. Exactly. We're not spending money on vacations. We're not driving to work. We're not stopping at Starbucks every day. So on a number of different levels, uh, it's not all bad news here because the 26% is also uh, supplemented by the 31% who say that there's been no impact either way. So about half the province is really doing okay throughout this pandemic and the other half is, is not. Uh, you talked or got a response as well from renters, uh, 41% saying that it's had a negative impact on their ability to pay the rent. Uh, but I thought I was interested the number 85% to say they have been able to pay the rent since the crisis started. Yes, uh, they've struggled, but they've really maybe done better than we thought because, you know, early in the early days of March, there was speculation that renters would just almost go on strike and, and tell their landlords that we're just not going to pay rent no matter what. But it seems like, uh, and this is again in May, so we've, we've covered the May 1st uh, rent time period, and we got 85%, so 15% have taken a number of different steps. In fact, only 2% say they've not paid rent altogether, which is a fairly low number. And the rest have asked for rent reductions, so that's 
uh, deferrals, 6%, and then 7% have taken part in the uh, province's rental subsidy program. And that number, I thought, seemed low. Is it, is it possible people don't want to admit to that or, aren't, or, or, or actually haven't taken part? But it did, did seem that, that a single-digit number there, to me, seemed low. It, yeah, it was a bit surprising uh, that people are doing other things. They're not always going through that program. You know, they're asking for rent reductions, they're asking for deferrals. Uh, maybe there's a time delay as well. Not everybody has has applied in the in the time they need to. So it, it did strike us as a bit lower than what we thought. And what about uh, you? Talk to renters. What about uh, is was it similar for people paying mortgages? Not quite as painful. So about thirty percent of homeowners, or mortgage holders, say the pandemic has had a negative impact on their ability to pay the mortgage. But again, like renters, about eighty-seven percent have been able to stay up to date. And of those who haven't. Uh, the vast majority, 12% of, of the remainder, has uh, made arrangements with their lender to defer. And, uh, you know, we have a very small sliver here of 1% who admit that they've defaulted. Hmm. And what about things like essentials, like groceries and things that you have to buy or you have to get somewhere? We did poll, I guess, a, a couple of polls ago. So this is about two weeks old, what people are doing more of and less of. And for sure, people are spending more on groceries, but they're eating out far less often, even if you include takeout. It's uh, almost double the number who say they're doing it less often versus those who are doing it more often than what they did before. Hmm. Uh, you talked as well, so in dollars, straight up dollars, uh, trying to figure out exactly how much this has cost people. How, what were you able to find there? Well, again, this is self-reported, but, you know, we've done pretty good in calling elections and other things where we validate our poll results. So what we did is we asked people on a scale is how much money have you lost so far? And uh, a very small percentage, so 5% of residents have lost over 100 grand. And that would include primarily business owners, restaurant owners, and small businesses. Uh, another 7% have lost between 50 and 100,000. Uh, a third have lost between 5 and 10K, and then so it goes down the list. But when you tally all those categories together, uh, we calculate it to be about a $50 billion hit. Hmm. And if you think of the province, the province is a $300 billion gross domestic product per year. So we're saying it's, you know, 15 or 17 percent of the economy has been hit right away. And this isn't, uh, this is point in time. So this is losses up in two right now when we did the poll and also looking forward because some people know that, you know, they're going to lose money in May and June, for example. And when you ask people that on how much, if they can gauge how much they've lost, is it mainly, do you think, uh, people, like you said, business owners or restaurant owners where their businesses have been forced to close down or they've chosen to close them down? Is it also people looking at their investments and what they've lost there? Uh, no, because I think people, we ask people about their investments and about 70% uh, say that it has had a negative impact on their investments, but they don't really look, tally that in the hard costs. And we, in the poll, quantified it by saying the, the actual dollar costs. Right. Because that, you know, that's fluctuating. It can, it can go one way or the other if the stock market goes up like it has been the last uh, three weeks. Did anything else stand out to, to you, uh, a re- reaction or feedback on this poll that you weren't expecting? Maybe the one that jumped out, you know, throughout the polling in the last couple of months, we found that uh, the financial impact and the negative impact, whether it's mental health and job security, has really been uh, over-reflected or or mainly impacting the 18 to 34 year old folks in the province. And this was a case where we've actually found about 40% of that group has saved more than they have usually. And uh, that's unusual because the province itself is at about 26%. So 
uh, it's unusual that the 18 to 34 year olds are saving more. Maybe they're just spending less and maybe the, the $2,000 a month program is helping a, a good percentage of those, but they're doing, they're, 40% are well or better off than what they were before. Hmm, very interesting findings. Well, Steve, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, BC's Minister for Multiculturalism has released a statement on hate crimes. And it begins by saying, I am deeply saddened by the recent rise in racially motivated physical and verbal attacks and vandalism against people of Asian heritage in our province since COVID-19 started. And joining me on the line to talk more about the statement is Anne Kang, BC's minister responsible for multiculturalism. Thank you so much. Good afternoon and thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. It's it's unfortunate, uh, to say the least, that you had to make this statement. But was there one particular incident or was it what we've been looking at in these past few weeks that prompted you to do this? Um, This one incident is one too many. And it's not just one incident that has instigated my, my reaction to this. When I see videos, when I see people reporting how they're treated, Oh, it's especially the videos that have come out. Um, it, it brings so much heartache and sometimes just brings me to tears to see how people can treat other people the way they are right now. Um, I these, these incidents are completely unacceptable and they shall not be tolerated. And I do want to say thank you so much for all those people who have stu- who have stood up to instances where they could. And I, I am I feel so bad that people are. Um, when they stand up, that oftentimes they are um, harassed as well. So um, thank you to our heroes. But once again, we will not accept any sort of discrimination and violence in our community. Yeah, I mean, it's scary when you look at even the the attack that Metro, uh, the transit police put out when they were looking for the suspect. And when somebody stood up to intervene and then ends up getting assaulted herself, it's scary. It definitely is, and I. But I do want to also point out that bravery and heroism is something we are looking forward to because standing out and condemning these acts are important. When um, we fail to denounce whatever is happening right in front of us, uh, hatred and these actions will thrive, and we cannot let that happen. Um, but once again, I, I also like to um, emphasize that. I understand that maybe perhaps some people are afraid and uh, they are looking for someone to blame for for their fear. Um, and during this time of COVID-19, we have to recognize that COVID-19 is a virus and it's not a person. And we cannot let fear and hatred spread because the virus doesn't discriminate. It affects all of us. And discriminating against other people won't protect us from the virus. So I want to encourage everyone to stand up and speak up, especially during this crisis. Uh, You've said in the statement as well that uh, as someone who moved to Canada from Taiwan, uh, that you're outraged that anybody would engage in these acts of discrimination, hate or violence. Uh, Have you yourself ever been a victim or a target of that? Um, so in my previous interviews, I have talked about how my, my mom and myself has, uh, we were walking through a mall and uh, two young men were following us and just making fun of our language and how we spoke to each other. And they followed us down a few corridors before laughing loudly and calling us stupid. Um, 
And and so that that's one sort of racism. But I also do want to point out that in addition to racism, there there is discrimination and prejudice that um, I want to bring into the conversation of people who are out. LGBTQ, people who are suffering from poverty or people um, with with disabilities. Um, And and another instance uh, for myself as a female, I was walking down the street, uh, down to my church, and I had a group of men whistle at me and ask me what my my price was. So even um, prejudice, um, harassment, sexual and objectification is unacceptable. We need to be able to live in a community, in a province, in in our our country without fear of violence or discrimination. What is it do you think about this particular case? Because unfortunately, there there has been violence. There there have been examples of violence and discrimination and and hate crimes uh, outside of a pandemic. What do you think it is specifically about this pandemic that is bringing out these these horrible or, or what it seems to be prompting even more of these horrible acts well i think number one it's ignorance it's ignorance in not recognizing that we are talking about a virus and a virus that does not have boundaries and it is a global pandemic it's not something that's happening just in british columbia or canada or north america it is global um, the ignorance of thinking that we can blame one specific culture or even one specific continent is is just, uh, you know, it's, it blows my mind. Um, I think it is the fear of the unknown and the fear of wanting to protect oneself. Um, let me take one example of something that I saw this morning um, of uh, a, a woman who, who is greatly into her pregnancy, she stood up and she said, no, that is not right. You cannot speak this way of another person. And um, what was the response was, my, my friends are dying. I know people who have died because of this act. And her response was, well, what you're saying is not acceptable. And there was silence. So I want to say thank you to all those who are standing up and, and speaking up because it's not putting... Um, an uncomfortable position of someone of um, Asian heritage. We have to recognize that people are um, living in fear. But we also need to recognize that it is not okay to be speaking out and, and speaking words of hate and racism. Uh, which I'm hopeful and, and think that everybody would agree, uh, at least I hope everybody listening would agree that that absolutely that's not okay. Uh, do you think that there's some frustration, though, in that our federal government has been very reluctant to even question China and not the people of China, but the government of China, the, the government of China's role in this, and to even question if there was a delay in, in sharing information, if there was something else? going on, uh, things that other countries have questioned? Well, I think we, we need to recognize um, how British Columbia is dealing with this issue and that we are standing really unified. One thing I would like to point out is to thank all levels of government as well as political parties for being so united in tackling this. And I don't think pinpointing our fingers to anyone um in, in our fear, in, the, in how we perceive as a lack of information is the way to go. I would like to point out our leadership um, in British Columbia and very proud of our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Again and again, every day, she tells us fear will only obstruct the important work that our public health officials are doing uh, in, 
in protecting British Columbians. And I agree with her that we are stronger and we can be healthier as a province uh, when we look at each other and we look out for each other. And um, during these times, we must stand up to fight against incidents of hate. We must be united. So looking at other places and pinpointing what is lacking is not going to help us solve this problem. Right. But would you agree that questioning the Chinese government is not being racist? Um, I, I would say questioning and any nation would, would be, um, I, I don't think it's, a, it's, I don't think it's racist because it's, it's a particular government. It, we could be questioning other parts of the countries as well. Um, if ra- racist, racist comments are those that are hurtful and, and those that will uh, be putting un- unnecessary pressure on people. So it, it is, I, I think it's fine. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for putting out the statement and for raising awareness about this. It's much appreciated. And thanks so much for coming on the show today. Definitely, Jill. Thanks. Well, as we go into phase two on Monday of the reopening of BC, a lot of people are wondering what several different services will look like. One of those being a trip to the dentist office. Joining me to talk a bit more about that is Dr. Alistair Nichol, chair of the BC Dental Association's Back to Work Task Force. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Have dentists uh, figured out or or worked on what exactly it will look like when the offices uh, open up again? Well, I'm sure every dentist in British Columbia is giving considerable thought to how they're going to manage uh, things going forward. I think it's important to recognize that this isn't so much opening up. Uh, Dentists have been available and uh, some have had their offices open for emergencies and non-elective care throughout. And so this is more um, an easing of the restrictions that were put in place by the uh, provincial um, uh, health officer in mid-March and as expressed by the College of Dental Surgeons at that time. So there's going to be an easing. Uh, The premier uh, in uh, in his address uh, about 10 days ago or so, I think, made it very, very clear that uh, WorkSafe BC will be issuing guidance to, to industry-related guidance to many different sectors. And at this point in time, it's not entirely clear what that guidance is going to be. I do believe WorkSafe BC posted something today, but I don't think that's available yet. So today is a big day. We're waiting for the College of Dental Surgeons to, to release some information. We're waiting for WorkSafe BC to release some information. And that's really what's going to fine-tune the preparations that dental offices will make to uh, expand their services. Right. So WorkSafe has put out some general guidelines when they're talking about health professionals, which I would think dentists would fall under. Uh, But it talks about things like hand-washing facilities, making sure those are available uh, to practice hand hygiene, to identify the common areas, uh, to to really restrict any kind of shared equipment or shared facilities. Uh, So, And I, I would imagine one of the things that might be different, too, is waiting rooms and this distancing, and you don't want people coming for appointments and and spending any more time than you would have to close to other people absolutely 
I think the, the, the first the first point of contact for, for, for any patients will be by telephone. There's going to be a screening going on, and that, that, um, this, that's really a key, key element of screening and triaging on the telephone. We need to uh, make sure that we know if anybody has any enhanced risk for COVID, whether they've been, um, they've been living or have been close with a person who is presumed or diagnosed with the disease, whether they themselves have any, uh, any symptoms of the disease. And then if, the, if, the, if that is the case, encourage them to, to reschedule at a later time. So once the patients who now we presume uh, do not have, um, are not a risk of transmission come to the office, it, there is going to be a difference. You're absolutely right. The waiting room will look more sparse. The chairs will be spaced further apart. The, um, the toys and magazines you so often see in the rooms will not be there. The administrative staff will um, appear a little more, a little further away. Perhaps there'll be physical uh, distancing there. There might be a plexiglass shield to, to keep them safe. Um, there'll be people will be encouraged to do financial transactions by telephone, and people will not only be spaced physically, but also in terms of timing. So the scheduling will be done in such a way that people aren't all coming into the waiting room at the same time. And the actual dental work, because I think. For the most part, dentists already wear masks. Uh, you obviously can't wear a mask while you're getting your teeth worked on. But do you anticipate we might see dentists now wearing face shields, or would that even be possible? Well, you know, I think well, an important thing to, 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 to acknowledge and to recognize is that dentists have been dealing with uh, the risk of transmitting infectious diseases between patients and staff or between patients and other patients for decades. I mean, you just need to think back to HIV and hepatitis B and that sort of thing. So we've been using PPE for, for, for decades and been using it very successfully. That's why you hear very, very little about it in ordinary times. So yes, we've been wearing gloves, we've been wearing masks, we've been wearing eye protection, there's been diligent disinfecting of space, of surfaces in between, and there's been rigorous attention to processing instruments and equipment between patients. So we've become very good at that. Um, with a respiratory tract in a viral infection, there's just a little bit of tweaking that needs to be done. And I think you've really, uh, you've really got it when you talk about, uh, about face shields. Um, if, if, if so many dentists wear magnifications, and many of them use headlamps, and uh, really, so to, to switch to using goggles probably wouldn't be as good. But if face masks, uh, face shields, uh, if they're suitably adapted, can be worn over the magnifiers, over the headlamp. They can protect the mask from moisture. So I think one of the differences you'll see in many, many offices, people will be generally wearing face shields. And another difference you may see is the use of gowns more often. Hmm. Uh, what do you think this will do for for an industry where a lot of people are, are get stressed out about going to the dentist, uh, whether it's getting a filling or getting anything done? It, it does cause a lot of stress, but it's, for a lot of people, they're, they're actually frightened of going to the dentist. Is this going to add to the stress levels, do you think, or will dentists have to be dealing with that patients who might already be a bit nervous and now there are all of these other measures as well to keep people safe? We're dealing with anxious people, um, particularly people who are fearful of dental treatment every day, day in and day out. It's probably one of the biggest barriers to uh, seeking out dental care on a regular basis. So we're very used to it. I think that uh, 
that dentists will be able to project a reassuring manner despite the fact they may look a little different. Um, and, you know, we'll be judicious in our use of that. It's going to be, we're, 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 I think people will be reassured by the fact that it is very clear that the dental office is a safe place, even in these difficult times. And hopefully that, too, will go quite a bit of, you know, towards, uh, you know, uh, helping people with their anxiety. And as far as reopening, and I realize some of dentists have been working and doing emergencies throughout this, do you think it'll be a gradual reopening back to kind of a full slate of, of patients? I, I, you know, we don't know the answer to that quite yet. And probably by early next week, we'll know much more about it. But if you were to ask me to give you my best guess, I think it's going to be a gradual phased um, re, uh, easing of restrictions that's going to be spread out over a number of different phases, leading eventually to what's going to be our new norm. And we really don't know at this point exactly what that will look like. Ultimately, it will be a full full slate of of treatment as we we were able to provide before, but I suspect that won't happen right away. All right, we'll leave it there. Dr. Nichol, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Nice to talk to you.